This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Have you tried changing your health year on year, resolving that this year things are going to be different, but nothing seems to change? Oftentimes, when things are not changing, we're following many wellness myths and not looking at the full picture, including our nutrition, recovery, stress management, leaving out mind-body connection. I want to introduce you to Wellness Redefined, a new podcast from Refillion Media that's here to dispel all your myths about wellness and fitness while sharing stories of how we redefine what it means to be healthy. On each episode, we'll be talking to experts from all walks of life who will share their own unique wellness journey and offer their perspective. I am your host, Tamika Rochester, founder and CEO of Harlem Cycle, a premier wellness space in New York City with a focus on indoor cycling. I've been an advocate for wellness since as early as I can remember. So if this sounds like something that could help change your life, go ahead and pause the show you're listening to and subscribe to Wellness Redefined on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to American Muslim Project. I'm Asad Butt. American Muslim Project is a podcast where we share the contributions Muslims are making to American life. In each episode, we elevate unique Muslim voices that are shaping this American experience. My guest today is Adnan Khan, the executive director of Restore Justice. Restore Justice is a nonprofit that works to end life and extreme sentences by changing the way society and the legal system responds to violence and harm. Adnan actually co-founded the organization while he was serving a life sentence in prison. In 2019, Restore Justice helped pass a law that changed his conviction and allowed him to be released from prison immediately. In part one of my interview with Adnan, he'll share the details of his story and how he became an activist in prison. We started the conversation talking about if America is in a mass incarceration crisis. Yeah, we are. We're in a mass incarceration crisis. Uh, but also the reason we have a mass incarceration problem is because we have a mass criminalization problem. Uh, and what that looks like is people from a very young age have been turned into, quote unquote, criminals by the state, by the system, by policing. It starts in school. Uh, it starts uh, from being a certain race, ethnicity, color, gender, right? Like all those things have have been implemented in criminalizing and further marginalizing people. And then that's how you're allowed to, uh, in a legal way, arrest people, incarcerate people. And now we have 2.7 million, 2.3 million people incarcerated. A quick example of that is just the other day, I think it was yesterday, a governor in the Southern state signed a bill that said in Georgia, said that you cannot uh, hand out water to people who are voting, standing right. in line for voting. So now they have turned that into a crime. Therefore, 
people who hand out water for people who are waiting in line are criminalized, right? But drinking water, passing out water, that's a, a basically a human need, right? People right. do that all the time. So, and, and so I'm not equating, I don't want to equate the um, handing out water to people committing violent, serious uh, crimes or harm. But what I'm, I'm saying is that people have been criminalized and now we have mass incarceration because of that. Well, are there other examples that you have? Um, what are kind of some of the... Uh the laws on the books that are really harming everyday people in, in America and I guess uh, adversely affecting mostly black and brown, brown kids. Yeah. I mean, there's, so, there's, I think the whole system is, is I, I don't, I don't say that it's broken um, because it's exactly architecturally um, planned to be this way. It just doesn't happen like that. No one builds a house without looking at the blueprint. Right. And so there's no way that something like this happened uh, or happens with uh, just bad luck or, or a broken piece here, broken piece there. It's a systemic problem. And so when we talk about prison and jails and, and laws, we have to tie it to the historical context of America. And I know that's a far reaching, like, oh, wow, so you're talking about people committing harm today. What does that have to do with 400 years ago or the inception of this country? Well, it has everything to do with it, um, everything to do with the infrastructure of this country, the racism of this country, the laws and, and uh, that were implemented to keep people marginalized and, like I just said, uh, further uh, to criminalize people. An example of that, like when I say criminalize, it starts off young. We had the idea, not the idea, actually, it's, it's a lot of data research around school to prison pipeline, for example. And an example of that specifically is in, in the uh, late 2000s in, in Los Angeles, uh, they literally had a Los Angeles school police department. Their job was to arrest students uh, for truancy. It was a, they were trying to curb truancy and their job was literally to arrest students, handcuff them many times in front of the school. And then on top of that $250 fine. And you and I can already imagine without digging too deep, what schools, what communities those uh, schools were in and who were being policed. And so then that goes on your record. For me, for example, I, I went through multiple different high schools, um, night school, adult school, uh, I'm sorry, night school, summer school, uh, continuation school, and uh, and still, by the time of my arrest, I was I still hadn't graduated. I was a high school dropout. And growing up, because of all the struggles that I was going through at home and the abuse and everything that I was experiencing in school, I would either couldn't pay attention or I would act out, misbehave for attention, for seeking some type of help. And how I was considered, I was considered a quote unquote bad kid. And for for bad kid that does bad things, you get um, uh, detention suspension or expulsion when quite literally a child's future depends on the child being in the classroom right and so to take a child out um and then on top of that a record uh zero tolerance policies we're not going to give you any chances one you mess up one time you're done and I, I grew up in those schools and so that's the point about criminalizing people another thing is about you know deterrence and what would have stopped people from incarceration is not a deterrence incarceration is a response after uh, society has failed. So I was also at the age of 17, I was also homeless as a homeless teenager. And people talk about this law could have prevented you and this life sentence or this, the death penalty. These are all there to deter and prevent people from committing harm. And that's the farthest thing from the truth, because literally what would have deterred me, one thing that would have deterred me, uh, I strongly believe is housing sure. as a 17 year old, the 18 year old housing would have deterred me. Um, but they didn't have that for me. Instead, they did have enough money to put me in a jail with uh, in a prison cell for 80000 a year after the fact. 
so when you say specific laws, I, I, I could point to almost every single one, um, and we all can point to any single one, and then and then link it to racism, systemic oppression, marginalization, and uh, poverty, and how communities are kept uh, specific communities are kept poor um, or or below the poverty level. It's, yeah. it's sad. Yeah, you you mentioned in the past that giving more money to police produces more violence, and that we really should be, as you just kind of mentioned, putting more more money into housing or mental health initiatives or, or whatever. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, and so if you look at any, pretty much anywhere around the country, and you look at the, you just identify the police budget, and you look at how much police get to keep people safe. The truth is, police don't keep us safe. Police respond to after a harm has been committed. But one thing that I realized after spending 16 years in prison and then growing up the way I grew up is that, okay, it's not the crime that was committed. Let's think about why people committed the harm in the first place. And not like, oh, I needed the $10 or $100. It's not that I needed the money and I committed a robbery, right? People probably will say that immediately. But when you look at the historical factors, example I always like to give is I was an eight-year-old little league baseball player at eight years old. And then at 18 years old, I was getting sentenced to life in prison. Wow. And I believe it was Jesse Jackson who said none of us are born armed and dangerous. So what happened in those 10 years before the harm? Right. And so by the time I was 17, I was a parentless, homeless high school dropout with layers and layers of trauma, kicked out of school multiple times. Right. And so what about those factors that we need to address? An example is like for in L.A. right now, there's a big deal going on with the Echo Park and uh, people who are unhoused in the encampment there. And there are four people, four unhoused people dying every day in L.A., but LAPD gets $8 million a day to exist. So, so that's the point, right? Like we're spending, right. and these are, these are approved policies. So, so people be, be living in poverty, being unhoused, unable to vote, all these things are legislators, city council, city, quote unquote, leaders making these decisions. So, so poverty, people unhoused, um, uh, uh, mental health, lack thereof, or substance recovery, uh, uh, you know, all these things are policy choices not to have. Instead, the the, the monopoly on who pr- keeps us safe, the narrative of that has been police and prisons. But when you peel back, really, you don't even have to peel back the layers. When you just study just a little bit on the data and the research, it's clear that police are taking away from things that prevent harm. Yeah. Uh, can you just share maybe just a quick synopsis of your story? I, I don't want to. I don't want to focus too much on it, but you know it is pretty central to your your life's work now. So I mentioned that by the time I was seventeen, parentless, homeless, high school dropout, um, I had a stepfather who made multiple attempts to to attempted murder, multiple attempts to take my life or poison me, and just things like that. An absent father, eventually uh, an abusive home. Uh, by the time, like I said, I was seventeen, I was. I had all that stuff in in me, and I think the historical context on the individual is important. So I, I when I turned I turned eighteen, um, and one night, living uh, I was in and out of a friend's house, living in the streets, parks, cars, friends' houses, couches. I remember tennis courts a couple of times, park benches several times, um, just wherever I could sleep. One night I had a friend who said, "Hey, um, we know a guy." You don't know him, but we do. He has $1,000 worth of weed. And in a fake drug deal, no guns, knives, weapons. Uh, we'll, we'll act like you're buying it from him. Uh, we'll tell him that you want to buy it from him. But when he hands it to you, literally sprint into a car. We'll call up a driver and the driver will drive off. And so 
you know, it wasn't even a thought, right? It was a more of an emotional um, um, a yes based on uh, my, based on emotions. And so I agreed to it, agreed to take the $1,000 worth of weed and run away. And they called up a driver, a person that they knew who I didn't know at the time. And when this young man came down and handed me the weed, it seemed like out of nowhere, my co-defendant, the person who was supposed to be the getaway driver, pulled this young man out of the car. Um, it appeared to me that from the car that they were fighting in the middle of the road. It was nighttime. So I get out of the car and I yell at him like, what are you doing? Get get in the car. What are you doing? Um, the next morning, we leave the scene. The next morning, I was arrested at 2 a.m., taken into custody. Um, and then finally, several hours later, I was taken into the interrogation room. And that's when they read me my Miranda rights. Um, and that's when they told me that you are being charged with a robbery and a murder. And right when he said that, I just remember breaking down hysterically. I don't remember. It just didn't, also didn't make sense. Like, how, how? How is this possible? So then I found out that the guy who was the getaway driver, he was 21 years old, young black man. He was facing, uh, uh, honestly, he was, he was young. He was a child uh, because he also struggled with, uh, in addition to uh, that, he struggled with the mental health, uh, bipolar and schizophrenia. And he wasn't taking his medication. And because of the paranoia, uh, from his mental health uh, conditions, he apparently carried a concealed knife on him. Oh, and wow. that's, appar that's apparently how he ended up taking the life of this young man. And I just couldn't believe it. And um, then I learned about the felony murder rule. And the felony murder rule said that anyone that's involved in a felony, in my case, is the robbery. It was a petty theft turned into a robbery. It was supposed to be a snatch and grab. That everyone involved in the, in the robbery is guilty of the murder, equally guilty. And so for for quick example, when I went to trial uh, and if you were one of the 12 jurors, your job was not to find me guilty of a murder. Matter of fact, my trial started off with the district attorney saying that, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, uh, I'm here to tell you that we, this is not a murder trial. In a sense, I will tell you right now, Mr. Khan did not commit the murder. You're only here to prove an intent to commit a robbery. So my entire trial was about proving me uh, that, that I had an intent to commit a robbery, which I did, I was guilty of, I still am guilty of, I admitted to, I took accountability. So once the jury found me guilty of an intent to commit a robbery, their job was done, they went home to their families, and the next phase was the judge's phase, and the judge had to sentence me, according to the felony murder rule, a mandatory 25 years to life. We're gonna take a quick break, more with my conversation with Adnan Khan coming up. Welcome back to American Muslim Project. My guest today is Adnan Khan, Executive Director of Restore Justice. Adnan was sentenced to 25 years to life under the felony murder law in California. He was just 18 years old when he went to prison and served 16 years before he was released. I also want to add a couple of things here, um, if, if you don't mind, because I think they're important, especially, uh, especially with this podcast. This is right after 9-11. It's an early 2003 the Afghanistan war. I mean, this is 9-11, the, the, the height of terror and terrorism. And um, George Bush's president, Arnold Schwarzenegger, is governor in California. It's very punitive. And I even remember before I, I got into that interrogation room the night of my arrest, I remember standing there um, naked when they're doing my forensics and the, the two police officers, whoever they were, uh, I mean, doing the forensics and DNA, they were just laughing like, 
I remember they asked me, what are you? Like, are you, because they wanted to classify me on the paperwork. Are you black? Are you white? Are you Asian? What are you? And I was like, um, um, I don't know. I'm, I was like, I'm, I'm Pakistani. And then they're like, what, what do you, what's that? I was like, like, I don't know. Like, what do you, that, that's it. Like, well, we don't have that on our thing. It's like, what are you, a terrorist? Like, like a terrorist, oh, right? Like, okay. uh, and they're laughing and they're laughing and, uh, or like a camel, like one of them camel dudes, right? Like, ha ha ha, like just laughing. So you're other, um, you sure you're not a terrorist? You're not, I remember the term sleeper cell. That, that was a common term back then. And I, uh, yeah. and they mentioned that, are you not a sleeper cell? Are you ha ha ha? And here I am standing naked, waiting for them to take these pictures and forensics and 18 years old. And I'm honestly like laughing along out of sheer fear and nervousness, you know? Um, and I don't even know what I'm being charged with yet until like a few uh, hour or so later when I was taken to that interrogation room I mentioned. Also, I spent four years in county jail. I talked about the trial, but four years of before I went to trial, which meant that I was in a 23 hour, 15 minute lockdown a day. So 45 minutes to come out, shower, uh, workout, use a phone, watch TV, uh, haircut, books, whatever it was, 45 minutes every day to do that. And no TV, radio, no, anything in your cell, just you, your cellmate, uh, and books maybe, and reflection. How do, and you, so, mm-hmm. how do you, how do you not go crazy? You do. I, I did. I, I mean, I mean, every second is a, is a fight, is an internal fight. You seek hope. You try to um, generate hope. You try to generate motivation inspiration, spirituality, it's, this is really hard to answer because I, um, how do I articulate each second, each minute, each hour struggle? Like, I just need to get through this next hour. I just need to get through this next, you know, how do I ignore this? How do I, what do I read? How do I laugh about other things? How do I hope for something better? Oh, I hope I get a, a, a mail from my sisters today or pictures. I wonder what's going on out there. Like, you, you do go crazy. Um, during my incarceration, I received, I got alopecia twice, which is uh, a bald spot on my head two different times during my incarceration, straight, just from stress and depression. I've been, I can't even tell you how many times I was actually uh, probably like depressed, depressed, like clinically, because I never went there. They don't offer, or at least at that time, they still didn't offer proper mental health and, and services like that. So you find community in the prison with, uh, or the jail with other incarcerated people. Right. Um, and that's where my mentorship happened. Like everything happened from outside the system. Right. My spirituality, my fasting, understanding Islam better from a, from English, man. Like I didn't grow up. I, we speak Urdu in my culture. Right. Like I speak sure. my language. I'm, I'm fluent in it. But when we read the Quran, like or when my, my grandma, who was also abusive in terms of physical abuse in reading the Quran, I, I didn't understand what I was reading or what I was reciting. And, and honestly, man, it took for me to get to um, and I don't credit jail or prison at all, but it took for me to get there and, and learn and read it in English, the transliteration um, and just understand the concept, break it down, understand spirituality, accountability. You know, then when I got life in prison, it's like, OK, I'm going to die here. So you think about the afterlife a lot. Right. Like, how do I make amends? Who's going to forgive me? How do I need to live my life now? It, it's just all of those things. All of those things are like a melting pot of survival, to be honest. Yeah. Um, so I just, and the last thing I want to say about the Muslim thing was I was sent to the whole and county jail for, for, you know, uh, deputies who were there were, were probably either from desert storm or recently, right. Deployed overseas. Remember I spent four years there, so they were in and out. So a lot of them are, are prior former military, uh, obviously they're, they're sheriffs. So they're law enforcement. Um, and, and, and the height of 
uh, well, it's always been anti, it's always been pro-white and anti-whatever, black, anti-brown, anti-Muslim. So I fit under all of, uh, under that thing in terms of anti-Muslim. So yeah, it just was never safe. Was it, was it verbal abuse, physical, uh, mental? Uh, all of it. I think, I think, um, for me, the, the physical, physical abuse was less, uh, in terms of just getting, I, I have been slammed on the ground. I have been handcuffed, taken to the, the, the hole, which is solitary confinement. So that's physical in itself, right. To, to go to, uh, uh even, even though I'm in a 23 hour, 15 minute lockdown, I'm still being sent to the hole, um, which is 24 hour, essentially lockdown. Um, so, so like, physical abuse happens in many ways, not just punching you in the face or slamming you on the ground, which is bad already. But, uh, so I would say all of it, man. Yeah. Um, and also limiting, right. So almost lim to, to, to deny access is also abuse. Meaning I wanted education, didn't have, I wanted uh, more services or learn about Islam more or other religions, spiritual practices. And it was limited access or, or, uh, non-existent. So that in itself is also abuse when you don't give, uh, that's violence when you, like, like in our communities, when we prevent education or quality education in, in low income communities or marginalized communities, that is violence. That's state violence because yeah. you're harming people. So yeah, all of it. It seems like for me, you know, I, I, I don't know very many people who've gone to prison or jail, um, but, you know, I think the notion is that it's supposed to be rehabilitation. And so for me to hear that you weren't, didn't have access to books, education, whatever it may be, that you were interested in it um, is, is a bit, I, I, I won't say surprising, but it, it's saddening. Um, mm -hmm. Because of the felony, felony murder rule, you got 25 to life. How did you become an activist? You, you eventually became an activist in prison. How did that happen? I've thought about this uh, a, a little bit. And I, I think about when did I become this this activist and wanting to change the system. And I remember like thinking about growing up, I was always never felt part of a community or part of a system or part of America. Right. Like myself and my, my, my peers in the community, like my age and were experiencing similar things as I was um, never felt part of anything. And and so we were always known like, you know, the word outlaw or rebel was a common. Like, I always been rebellious. That's how I remember used to saying that I don't use that term as often as I used to. But now I realize that I was really not rebelling against people in, per se. I was rebelling against a system that I couldn't find safety or security within or, or address the needs, simple needs. Like literally, man, like I was hungry. I was, when I was 17, I was hungry. I needed, I remember the, one of the most shameful times in my life was asking somebody at, at a bar station, which is the subway type of thing in the Bay Area, um, for a dollar just so I can go get a burger from McDonald's or Burger King. And that was like, so it, was, it took so much in me to ask somebody for that, but that's how hungry that I was. That so my point is that am I a rebel? Am I rebelling against something, or am I trying to fit in and, and address the needs that I have without being able to articulate that as a teenager? And then throughout my early incarceration, and so then when you when you couple that with like knowledge of information of the system, and it came to a point where I really wanted to investigate my conditions, whether they were my physical conditions, the historical context of prison, and why do we have and what's the purpose of it. Uh, coupled with my own uh, investigating conditions of my life in my, my childhood. And so one of the first, not one of, the first book I've ever read in jail, like my first two days that was, it was handed to me was uh, George Jackson's Blood in My Eye. And if, for those who know George Jackson, revolutionary, uh, was, was killed in San Quentin State Prison in the 70s, 
So he was, um, that was the first book I read. It was so dense for me that I didn't quite understand it, but the people who handed me the book were just saying like, look, this is, read this, uh, just read it. And I remember finishing the book and absorbing whatever I could and then just sitting with the people that were in that county jail for like a year, two years, some of the, the people who mentored me. And honestly, everyone, like we took care of each other. Uh, there were some, a lot of Muslim brothers who were, uh, who were black and who were really un- trying to like explain like Islam and system. And that's where I started to get in immediately almost. That, after that, I read Soledad Brothers and Angela Davis's book and learned about J. Edgar Hoover. And uh, I mean, I just, that's just, and by the way, a lot of these books were not allowed in, the, in, the, in that jail at that time or prisons when I got to certain prisons because you cannot be an activist in prison. You'll get, it's a danger to the, uh, the system, right? To organize and mobilize and, and speak against the system. It's, it's also like a lot of the books that I did read had other covers on it. I remember getting um, a book that had, like I forgot some novel writer, um, his, his cover was like ripped out of his own book and glued onto one of those revolutionary books and that's how we i I was able yeah that's how we kind of got got passed around those books and tried to educate each other and and, yeah join us on our next episode in part two of our chat with anand khan he'll share more about his resentencing and about his work with restore justice thanks again for listening to american muslim project our show today was produced and edited by mark anato lindsey gamble and me asad butt Simon Hutchinson did our theme. You can reach us on our website, AmericanMuslimProject.com. Yeah.